Uh, it's there on the screen, so let's pray it together. Not, don't repeat after me, but let's do it together. Avinu Malkenu, our Father and our King, give me eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to perceive, and the will to obey your word that I hear today in Yeshua's name. So today we are continuing our four-part series, which is entitled Free at Last. This is the third message. Uh, which is entitled, I Am Redeemed. And it's based on the promises made in Shemot 6, which are connected to the four cups that we drink of at Passover time. So let's just read that passage again today, which is this uh, the basis of our series. Uh, Shemot 6, 6 through 8. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Yitzchak, and to Yaakov. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. So obviously, we're looking at the third promise today in this passage, which is, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. This is connected to the third cup of the Passover Seder, and that cup always takes place after dinner. So the first thing I want to do is to talk about redemption. The Hebrew word here says ga'alti. And we always say these four words, this should sound familiar to those who come to the Seder, which simply means, I will redeem you. There is much in the Hebrew scriptures about the concept of a kinsman redeemer called the Goel, which is again from this same root, Ga'alti Goel. And the kinsman redeemer was a family member who had the responsibility for protecting or regaining persons and property from the extended family, not just their personal family, but the extended family. Because these extended family members were people who could not help themselves. They had no means uh, to get get back their own to redeem themselves or to redeem their land if they had lost it. And we, uh, one of the most famous stories in the Hebrew scriptures about this concept is found in the book of Ruth. Remember, Ruth was the daughter-in-law of Naomi. Uh, Ruth is a Moabite. Naomi is a Jewish woman who went to Moab under famine with her family. Uh, one, uh, one of her sons marries Ruth. Uh, her other son marries Orpah. All the, the two sons and the husband die, and Naomi and, and Ruth come back to Israel. And there... Uh, Ruth meets this man, Boaz, actually gleans in his field, and uh, he is a kinsman redeemer. He's not the closest kinsman redeemer. There was someone else who was closer that could have redeemed Ruth and Naomi and the land that belonged to Naomi's family, her husband and her sons, but he was not willing to perform the action of redeeming Ruth and Naomi, and that opened the door for Boaz to do so. And so that's the story that most of us are familiar with, the whole concept of kinsman redeemer. Throughout time, the, uh, the abstract noun form, which is geulah, from that same word, uh, in Judaism, 
begin to acquire messianic associations referring to God's ultimate redemption of Israel. Well, we know who that Messiah is, don't we, right? And we're going to talk about that. So what God is saying here in Shemot chapter 6 to the Israelites was that he himself would be the kinsman redeemer. Do you hear that? The kinsman redeemer on behalf of the Jewish people. So in doing so, he was reaffirming to them and to the world, this is my mishpacha, this is my family, these are my children. Do you understand what God is saying when he says, Ga'alti, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to be your kinsman redeemer. I'm the closest family member to you, and I'm going to take care of your issue and redeem you from out of slavery. So I was looking up the subject of the kinsman redeemer as I was preparing this message, and I read one article, and in this article, he took all the scriptures referring to it, which made it easy for me, uh, and put them all together and listed out what a kinsman redeemer's responsibility was and the requirements of. So let's look first at the responsibility. There were three, uh, three responsibility that the kinsman redeemer had. <clears throat> Most of these are found in Vayikra, Leviticus chapter 25. He had to redeem the land. He had to redeem the enslaved person. And then Bamid Bar Numbers 35 talks about the kinsman redeemer had the responsibility to revenge and murder of a family member if it took place. So those are the three responsibilities that the kinsman redeemer had. Now, what did it require to be a kinsman redeemer? When you look through those scriptures, it tells us, first of all, that the kinsman redeemer had to be a near relative. Okay? Couldn't be a stranger. Right, So you couldn't go and redeem your neighbor's property. You had to be related somehow. Even if you were a distant fifth cousin on the mother's side, you know, somehow you had to be related to be a kinsman redeemer. The next thing is you had to have the means to bring about the redemption. In other words, you couldn't redeem something if you couldn't put out the money. Okay, because that's how things were redeemed in the ancient world. If I went to redeem uh, your piece of property uh, for you, I had to pay a certain amount according to the value and the years from Jubilee and all those sort of things. So you had the means to do it. So even if I wanted to help my cousin but I had no means to do it, I can't be the kinsman redeemer. And then the third thing was that you had to be willing to be the kinsman redeemer. Think about it. The one man in the story of Ruth wasn't willing. He certainly qualified being a next of kin. I, he, we're not 100% sure, but I believe he had the means because the issue he talks about is he, he just didn't want to do that because it meant that you know, Ruth would become his wife, and when he heard that, that's when he balked because he didn't want her as his wife. But he, was, he wasn't willing And again, that opened up the door for Boaz. And I said, this concept of the redemption, the redeemer, is connected to the third cup after the Seder. And this is the cup that Yeshua identified himself with at that last Seder that he celebrated with his Talmudim. So in Luke 22.20, which we shared this last uh, week when we took the Shulchan Adonai, and it will be in our Haggadah as well. It says, Yeshua did the same with a cup after the mill. What cup is that? Cup of redemption, and it's the third cup, right? The third promise. And this is what he said. 
This is the cup. This cup is the new covenant ratified by my blood, which is being poured out for you. So Yeshua fulfilled the role of kinsman redeemer, not just for the Jewish people, but for all mankind. Let's look at how he met the requirements to do that. First of all, to be a near relative or a kinsman. Think about it. Messiah took on human flesh to fulfill this requirement to be our goel. His incarnation fulfills that requirement. It tells us, Yochanan 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten Son of God. That's Yeshua. He became man so that he could be our kinsman redeemer. Philippians 1, 6-7 said, Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard, regard equality with God, something to be possessed by force. In other words, you get the, the, the gist of what that verse is saying? I digress. This is not in my notes and things, but just it just struck me here. He did not, by force, try to take the equality of God. In other words, he did not have to die. And if he had said to Abba, Father, God, I just cannot do this. This is just more than I can do. And he could have, by force, insisted, I don't want to become a human being, and I don't want to lay my life down for them. Do you understand that? Because we take for granted everything that Yeshua did. But this verse is telling us he did not record equality with God, something to be possessed by force. In other words, he is God himself. And he could have said to the God, the Father, and to the God, the Ruach, look, I'm one of you. I'm part of this God, and I don't have to do this. And he could have insisted. But he didn't. On the contrary, verse 7 says. This verse has given me goosebumps. I don't know about you. It is just so powerful to understand what Yeshua did. He emptied himself in that he took the form of a slave by becoming like human beings are. And Yeshua refers to himself as the son of man. Think of what it says in Mark 10, 45, where Yeshua is speaking. He says, for the son of man, meaning himself, did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. Why does he use the title son of man? Because it connects him as our kinsman redeemer. It qualifies him because he's related to us. And he says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life for other people. The second requirement is one had to have the means of bringing about redemption. Kepha Allah, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19. Kepha reminds us, you should be aware that the ransom paid to free you from the worthless 
way of life which your fathers passed on you did not consist of anything perishable like silver or gold. On the contrary, it was the costly, bloody, sacrificial death of the Messiah as a lamb without defect or spot. Do you understand what your redemption cost? It wasn't some frivolous piece of silver or gold. The sacrifice of the pure lamb of God. His blood and the fact that he was pure, there was no sin in him, fulfilled this requirement of atoning for sin, which is what he did in his role as a kinsman redeemer. You could never, ever atone for your own sins. I can never, ever atone for my sins. There is nothing that I could do to atone for my sins. And we know from the Hebrew scriptures that blood must be sacrificed. So Yeshua said, gave his blood as an atoning work on the tree of sacrifice to redeem us from sin. It could not be the blood of animals, Messianic Jews, Hebrews 9, 11, and 12, says that that was just a temporary thing that God instituted in the Tanakh, but it all pointed to that once-for-all sacrifice that we will be celebrating at Passover, that once-for-all sacrifice that Yeshua made there on the tree of sacrifice. And the third requirement was that one had to have the desire. The desire to accomplish redemption. You see, it always costs the kinsman redeemer something to redeem the person or land. It wasn't just a superficial title. Oh, I'm the kinsman redeemer. Oh, isn't that cool? No, a kinsman redeemer was a sacrifice on the part of the person who stepped into that role. A sacrifice on his part had to be made. When Boaz redeemed Ruth, Naomi, and their land, he laid out money. As I said, that's why the closest relative did not want to do it. Yeshua, understand, was willing to become our kinsman redeemer. Adonai was willing to save us. The prophets tell us that when God could find no one else, he himself decided to become our deliverer. Yeshua was willing. He says in Yochanan 10.18, listen to this, no one, but no one, no one takes my life away from me. On the contrary, I lay it down of my own free will. Again, I pray that you grasp the depth of the seriousness of what Yeshua did and the power of his redemption on our behalf. He did not have to do it, but he was willing. No one No one, not the Romans, not the Jewish people of that first century. No one, no one took his life. He freely gave it for mankind. He redeemed us with his own blood. We just have to accept it. That's our part. That was the part of Ruth and Naomi with Boaz. They had to accept the fact that he wanted to become their kinsman redeemer.
His work on the tree of sacrifice was complete. As he hung there and he cried out, It is finished. It is finished. What do those three words mean? It means there is nothing that you or I can do or that we need to do that can add to our redemption. We need to simply accept his provision. An article I was reading by John MacArthur talked about these words, it is finished. He says, it is finished with a shout of triumph, the proclamation of a victor. The work of redemption that the Father had given him was accomplished. Sin was atoned for, and Satan was defeated and rendered powerless. Every requirement of God's righteous law had been satisfied. God's holy wrath against sin had been appeased. Every prophecy had been fulfilled. Messiah's completion of the work of redemption means that nothing needs to be, nor can be added to it. Salvation is not a joint effort of God and man, but it is entirely a work of God's grace, appropriated solely by faith on your part and my part. His mission was accomplished. The time had come for Messiah to surrender his life. It is finished, he said. Yeshua laid down his life of his own initiative and out of his own desire, knowing the pain and agony that he would go through. Again, it wasn't simply throwing some money into the coffers that was going to take care of atoning for your sin and my sin. He knew what awaited him. He knew that his back would be beaten to shreds, that his body would be bruised beyond recognition, that a crown of thorns would crush his head, that spikes, not some little nail that you find in your you know, uh, Home Depot, these were spikes that would be driven through his hands and feet. He understood that his father would have to turn away from him as he carried the sins of mankind in himself on that tree of sacrifice. Yet he chose to do so. Why? Because he loved you and he loved me. Yet the enemy of our soul wants to make us think it's not complete somehow, that there is more we must do, or that he somehow has legal right to us. Friends, I want to encourage you this morning that those are lies meant to keep us in bondage. But Passover is about freedom, and we're talking about being free at last. Rabbi Michael shared last week in his message the illustration of the elephant, excuse me, who is trained by that chain around his ankle so that even when the chain is removed, the elephant continues in that same pattern. Yet he is so powerful, that elephant, and free, and in reality he could do whatever he wanted and no man would stop the elephant who really might be the king of the jungle and not the lion, just saying his size alone. But I'm sure that's a debate the jungle animals have every once in a while. 
And that's what the enemy wants to do to us. Wants us to make that, make us feel that we are in bondage. But we have been redeemed from sin and its power over our lives. You have been set free from Hasatan. He has no legal right to afflict us in any area of our lives unless, unless, unless we abdicate our authority to him. He wants you to think that our mere human efforts can somehow compare to or add to the sacrifice that Yeshua made on that tree, that somehow my efforts will help atone for my sins. And therefore, he keeps us in this bondage called legalism and this works mentality. If I could just, you know, do this, then then I'll be better for God. You know, and I'll be more saved. My sins will be more atoned for. I just have to do these things. And it's a bondage that, that he holds us and snares us in. Friends, you can never do anything to atone more for your sins than what Yeshua has already done. He bombards us with thoughts telling us we're not good enough. And he implies again that we are under his control. But listen to me, the minute, I mean the second that we accept Yeshua The devil's chains are broken off of us. Amen? One writer said of this verse in Shemot, For a person so redeemed, life can begin anew. For Israel, this means life anew with God. That's what Rav Shaul meant when he said, We are new creatures or creations in the Messiah Yeshua. It means we have a fresh new start to life in him. So whether you're sitting here this morning or listening to the podcast, you need to understand that when you accept Yeshua as your Messiah, when you accept his atoning work on your behalf, you are redeemed from the chains of darkness and from the power of Hasatan to start a new life. And this new life is to be an abundant life. Yeshua tells us in Yochanan, John 10.10, I have come so that they may have life. Life in its fullest measure. Some translations say life abundantly. Another translation said, my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Adonai redeemed Israel out of Egypt so that they could experience a new life in the promised land. His plan was to take them to a land flowing with milk and honey. It represented this rich and satisfying life that Yeshua promises to all believers. We have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb to live a new life. A life full of promise, a life full of purpose, a life full of joy and victory, no matter what is going on around us. God did not redeem Israel out of Egypt to have her wander in the desert for 40 years and to die there. We get that? Do you understand that? That was not God's plan for that generation to die in the wilderness. He redeemed them out of slavery to bring them into that wide, open, spacious place that he had prepared for them, as the psalmist says. And Messiah redeemed us from the slavery of sin to bring us into the fullness of life that he has prepared for us.
Amen, Rabbi Carol. Good preaching. Now let's look at the last half of the promise of redemption. Adonai took Israel out. It says he redeemed them with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Let's look at this phrase, an outstretched arm. Arms are stretched out by men to help and save other people. You can think, as I'm thinking of this imagery, I'm thinking of the different movies and TV shows you see where someone is, for some strange reason, hanging off of a cliff. How did they ever get there? And the person is coming to save them, and what do they do? They reach down, that outstretched arm, to pull them up, right? So that's the whole imagery behind this phrase here. And in Egyptian writing... That outstretched arm meant action. In one of the hieroglyphs, when you see the little arm figure, it means that whether, if it's a, used as a determinant there, it means that that word is an action word. And it was significant of active energetic help. So Adonai actively redeemed us by sending his one and only son who freely offered himself on our behalf. Some translations will take outstretched arm and render it as uh, meaning by his mighty power. So I redeemed you with my mighty power. And we need to be encouraged that no one can stand up to the power of God Almighty, the creator of the universe, of the heavens and the earth. He is the great I am. No one, no one compares to him. And you have to reflect on the fact that the great I am is the one who redeemed you, who redeemed me. That's what we're celebrating as we come through Passover. And that's what God wants us to experience in our lives daily. It's not an intellectual understanding that he wants you and I to come to, but he wants us to experience what he did for us in our daily, weekly life, that we are redeemed from sin, from the power of darkness, with his mighty power and outstretched hand. So I was reading another article about the, uh, uh, the person wrote about how God reveals himself in scripture. And this would be a good topic for another sermon series maybe in the future. But I just want to go over some of these things to encourage us that this is the God who has redeemed us. This is the powerful, mighty God who is working on your behalf and my behalf. God declares in Shemot 31.13, I am Adonai Mikajeskim. I am the Lord, your sanctifier, the God who makes you holy. How does he do this? By forgiving our sins and putting his Ruach to work in our life, enabling us to become like he is, pure, loving, and true. He declares that I am Adonai Roi. I am the Lord, your shepherd. Right? That he cares for us the way that a shepherd tends his sheep, and he will take us and lead us to, to calm waters and green pastures. He says, I am Adonai Shema, the God who is there. Sham, there. I'm present. God promises that he will never, ever leave us or forsake us. He'll be with you forever. He's your best friend. You want to have a best friend? God is the best friend you'll ever have. He'll always be there for you. This is the God who redeemed you. This is the God who exerted his mighty power on your behalf, on my behalf. He's Adonai Rofecha. I am the Lord God, your healer. 
By his stripes we are healed, declares the word of God. I don't care what you're feeling in your body today. As you can hear, my throat is not doing the best. But I know the truth of God's word that he is a God who heals. And that God who heals redeemed me from the power of sin, from the curse of the law. And wrote my name in the book of life. He's the same God who will work with his mighty arm to bring healing and deliverance into your body today. Receive it. He's other nights at Canu, the Lord of righteousness, who, bring, who through our belief in Yeshua the Messiah, creates us to be the righteousness of God through Messiah Yeshua. He's Adonai Yerah, the God who will provide. Yeshua says that we don't need to worry or, or about anything, what we're going to eat or drink or the clothes we're going to wear, where we're going to live, because God's going to take care of all of those needs. And it goes on and on. Again, this would be a great sermon series, maybe sometime in the future. Adonai Nisi, the Lord, or banner, that he gives us victory in spiritual battle. Adonai Sivot, three times in the... Haftor reading, it used that phrase today, Adonai Tzivaot, the Lord God of hosts. The Bible mentions that there are myriads of angels in the heavenly realm, and those angels are doing warfare on our part. How do we know that? Because in the book of Daniel, Michael the archangel comes to Daniel and says, there's been this war going on. Even though you prayed, and it's been a while since you prayed, and you're wondering what is going on, the moment you prayed, the answer came. But I had to do war with other heavenly spiritual forces of darkness before I could get here to you. Well, Adonai Sivaot means he is the Lord of all of those angels in heaven that are warring on our behalf, amen. And he is the one, again, who stretched out his mighty arm to deliver us. So we don't have to fear the enemy who tries to intimidate us. We need to know that our God is the most high God and there's no one like him. He's El Gibor, God Almighty. He's mighty to save. His arm is not too short. Whatever problem you are facing, know that your God is El Gibor. There's no power of darkness that can withstand to him. He is our redeemer. He is our deliverer. He is our savior. The prophet said in Yirmiyahu, Jeremiah 32, 17, Adonai God, you made heaven and earth. See, he's recalling who he is, right? By your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Can you say that with me? Nothing is too hard for you. Freedom at last. The enemy wants you to think freedom will never come to you. But our prayer that by the end of this series and hopefully through these first two weeks, today and next week's message, will just continue to unveil the truth to you and lead you to that place where you can stand with arms raised high, like that picture at the beginning of the PowerPoint, and say, I am free at last. But the enemy wants you to think that he is powerful. And that what you're facing is too difficult for your God. Thinking of our story in Shemot, 
Egypt was not more powerful than the God of Israel. The enemy who seeks to keep you and me in bondage is not greater than the God of the universe who redeemed us and delivered us with the precious blood of the Messiah, Dayenu. Pharaoh was not greater than the great I am. He thought he was God. But let's set the record straight, historically and spiritually. Every Pharaoh that ever existed, died, was buried in his tomb, and never ever seen again. But the great I am, Yeshua the Messiah, came and died on that tree of sacrifice. He was buried in that tomb for three days. But on the third day, he rose to life everlasting. Amen. And no force of darkness, no power coming against you is greater than the God who rose from the dead to secure our atonement and our deliverance from every power of darkness who would seek to keep us in chains. God didn't bring you out of sin. God didn't atone for you and bring you out of the slavery of sin for you to live a miserable life. Hello? So if you are miserable, listen to me. If you're miserable, you don't have to raise your hand. Please don't. But if you are miserable, then you're listening to the wrong person. And you're focusing on the wrong things. Because God did not deliver you from sin for you to be miserable. He is risen, and because he is alive, you and I can be totally free from the oppression of hell. And the last phrase we're looking at is that phrase, great judgment. Now, back in the book of Shemot, this had been hinted at in chapter 3 and chapter 4, but they had not been called judgments. Remember, if you go back to Bereshit, Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham beforehand, you're people are going to end up down in Egypt. This is what's going to happen. But he made a promise that he was going to bring them out. And when he tells them, he says that that nation whom they serve, I am going to judge. So these plagues and these wonders that God did were not just signs and wonders, but they were actually punishments inflicted on that proud and cruel nation by a righteous judge, God Almighty. One writer said this, said this of the whole story there in of Egyptian part in enslaving the Israelites and how God came against them for that. He said Israel had unfairly oppressed the Israelites. They were never a real threat. They would never actually have joined with Asiatic enemies to try to take over Egypt. In chapter 1, verse 10, when the new Pharaoh rises, he's afraid of the Israelites, and that's when they become enslaved. This writer goes on to say, therefore they were illegally placed in servitude. Hear that word, illegally? Accordingly, God would not merely rescue the people from the Egyptians, but he would also overtly punish the Egyptians in the process. 
Friends, if you have received Yeshua the Messiah into your heart, if you accepted his blood atonement on your behalf, hell does not have authority to keep you in bondage. Yeshua's death on the tree of sacrifice was a great judgment against Hasatan and his demonic forces. Just like God made judgments against the gods of Egypt who are no gods at all, Right, and we go through this in our Seder, and there's, I mean, you can every play comes against one or two different gods because they had a gazillion there in Egypt, but none of those gods could stand up to the God of Israel, could they? Because they're not gods at all. Satan is a created being. Hello, we forget that he's created. Like you and I are created. He's not infinite. He's not all powerful. But he makes you think he is. And he makes you think that you cannot get free from his grip. Rav Shaul describes it this way in Colossians 2.15. That Yeshua stripped the rulers and authorities of their power. He made a public spectacle of them. Triumphing over them by means of the stake. Oh, friend, I wish you would fully understand the power of the tree of sacrifice on our behalf. That you would fully comprehend the truth of this verse and that you would fully walk in its reality on a day-by-day basis. Some translations say instead of stripping, they disarmed, that Yeshua disarmed. The Greek word here does literally mean to strip off, to take away. And in our context, what it is telling us is that Yeshua took away the authority and power of the enemy against you and me, and he did so in a public manner to shame and disgrace him. One commentator said the stake on which Messiah died is compared to the chariot in which the victor rode in triumph. Another article said, here the cosmic powers themselves are shown off as captives in Messiah's triumphal procession, an image that was familiar to Romans and known to others throughout the empire. For in Roman triumphs, the general general would dress up as the god Jupiter and led behind him humiliated captives who were stripped of their possessions, and prominent captives were the most impressive. So here this article said Messiah displays his triumph over the most prominent captive possible, that is Hasatan and the demonic forces. Amen? Now I can hear you saying in your mind, Okay, Rabbi Carol, then why do we have to fight? And why do we have to use all those weapons that Rabbi Michael spoke about last month when he preached on Ephesians chapter 6? If the enemy has been stripped of his power and authority, why do we have to do this? I'm glad you asked in your mind. Because that fighting the fight of faith is us enforcing what Yeshua did when he hung on that tree was buried in that grave for three days and rose from the dead. Yeshua actually did the hard part. I'm just saying. He did the hard part. We're called to enforce his victory in our lives. 
We're told to submit to Adonai and to resist the devil, and he must do what? He must do what? Let's say it like we believe it. He must do what? So if we submit to God and resist the devil, he must flee. Why must he flee? He's been stripped of his authority and power over us because we accepted Yeshua into our life. He has no authority unless, 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 like I said earlier, we abdicate or give that authority to him. Friends, some of you do that on a regular basis. You give authority to Hasatan because you listen to the lies that he speaks in your head. And you get blown away by the circumstances you're facing as if those circumstances are too hard for your God and that nothing will ever change and you abdicate. Your authority. You need to know this truth because Hasatan knows it. He knows he is defeated. Do you understand that? He knows he is defeated. He got the memo when Yeshua rose from the dead. But he attempts to impose his will on us. And we know he certainly rules over the atmosphere of this earth for a time. However, as believers, we cannot and should not tolerate his endeavor to keep us in chains that we have been freed from. By God Almighty. I know there are many different songs and poems that have been written about Yeshua's death on the tree of sacrifice. One song uh, growing up talked about how hell was having this big party. I don't know if hell was having this big party or not. And that when Yeshua rose from the dead, they began shaking in their shoes, their boots. But there's a reality to the fact that Satan knows his days are numbered. And he will do whatever he can to ensnare any person he can. To pull them down and to drag them into the pit of hell. Burning with fire and torment that will never, ever, ever, ever cease. But I have been redeemed. I have been set free. And so have you if you have accepted Yeshua. Free at last. This is my destiny. This is your destiny. Redemption is ours through the blood of Yeshua. On that tree, that sacrifice redeems us, transforms us, and gives us a new abundant life in him. Do not let Satan deceive you. Do not let him keep you in bondage. You have been redeemed. You are free at last. Say it with me. Put it up on the screen, Gabe. Next slide. Let's say this. I am redeemed. I am free at last. Hallelujah. 
And that means it is time to rejoice because it was finished when he hung on the tree of sacrifice. And there's nothing else you or I have to do just to enforce what he did by obeying his word and not tolerating the forces of darkness. When I ask my husband to come up to the keyboard, I want to close with this scripture from Tehillim, Psalm 118, verses 14 through 16. The psalmist says, Adonai is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. The sound of rejoicing and victory is heard in the tents of the righteous. Adonai's right hand struck powerfully. Adonai's right hand is raised in triumph. Adonai's right hand struck powerfully. The Lord stretched out his hand to bring deliverance to Egypt. He stretched out his hand to bring atonement for your sins and my sins to the sacrifice of Yeshua the Messiah. I am redeemed, you are redeemed. I am free, you are free. And there should be great rejoicing in your life and in my life. Let's stand to our feet. Can you lower, Can you lower this keyboard a little bit, Jim? Free at last. This is what God wants for you and me. Freedom. As I said, he didn't redeem us so that we could live a miserable life. He redeemed us so that we could sing and shout joyfully and live a joy-filled life. Doesn't mean a life without problems. Doesn't mean a life without challenges. But it's a life where you're free. A life where you can experience the joy of the Lord. So right now as we close, I want to give opportunity. Perhaps you're here today and you have not said yes to Yeshua and his work on the tree of sacrifice for you. Or you're listening by podcast and you've never done that. So I'm going to ask you just to pray this simple prayer after me. But it'll probably be the most important decision. And not probably, it will be the most important decision you will ever, ever make in your life. Because when you accept what Yeshua did for you, you will be free. So I'm going to ask everyone to pray after me here in the sanctuary. Again, if you're listening by podcast, pray and receive freedom and atonement for your sins. Yeshua, thank you for being my kinsman redeemer. Thank you for freely giving your life, for shedding your blood, so that my sins could be atoned for. I choose today to accept what you did for me, knowing I can add nothing more to your death by my actions. Adonai, I dedicate my life to following you and your word. Amen. If you pray that prayer for the first time and you're here in the sanctuary, I want to encourage you to come and talk to my husband or me because God wants to lavish his love upon you and and we want to help you to grow in your journey of life as you seek him and you grow as his 
his follower. And if you're listening by podcast, somewhere you can find a congregation where you live and, and, and plug into it, reach out to us. We'll try to help find you a place where you can go that will help you to grow in your faith and knowledge of God. I'm going to close right now with ironic benediction. And I'm going to ask those who are here for my prayer team to come forward. If you have any need that you want us to pray with, come forward. Listen to me. If you are sick in this room today, please come forward and be anointed. I don't care if I, we prayed for you every week. We're going to bombard heaven for your healing. We're going to stand against the spirit of infirmity. And if you have any other need, these people are here to come into agreement with you uh, uh, for God's deliverance in your life. But I just want to bless you with ironic benediction. And, uh, and may God just bless you with a good week. May Adonai bless you and keep you. May Adonai make his face shine on you and show you his favor. May Adonai lift up his face towards you and give you peace. May you walk in the peace and in the joy of your redemption, understanding that you are free at last. If you're a parent and you have children in the ministries downstairs or in the nursery, please come forward to the front so we can pray for you first so you can uh, pick up your children. And again, anyone who wants prayer, please come down. The team is ready to minister to you. Shabbat Shalom. Prayer will take place around 2 o'clock. Hebrew classes at 3. Prayer partner breakfast tomorrow. You can see Rena if you're interested and you didn't get a chance to sign up. God bless.